Violence per se has never been my bag, except personally. But in pictures, as and I would like to uh, try to at least portray it on screen as it is. Uh, I've failed, and I've succeeded. All those pictures you talk about basically are morality plays. I've broken a lot of fences and noses. I just do the uh, best kind of a job I know how. And, uh, but there are certain people who are filmmakers and there are certain people who are not. That's all. Captain's Log, pod date 53565.5. We've arrived in the Side Hustle Nebula in the Hue Quadrant for a rendezvous with Film vs. Film's Martin, who will join us for the long-awaited exploration of two of the three Star Trek actors who went on to direct films in the series as part of our Season 10 Discussing Films Directed by Actors. First, however, we needed to break it to William Shatner that he didn't make the cut. Captain Thomas and I both agreed that bit of diplomacy was best left to Martin. Uh, cut to Martin hesitantly knocking on William Shatner's door. Cut to Martin feverishly driving away with William Shatner on his hood like TJ Hooker. <laughs> wow. Welcome to the good, the pod, and the ugly. <laughs> Star <you>. Trek. <laughs> and welcome Martin from across the pond. Hello. It's great to be here. Finally. I'm Ken. I'm Thomas. And uh, Martin, um, we were on your show discussing yeah. Christian Bale, and um, I do have to apologize. We recorded that the day after my first wedding anniversary, and I was okay. so hungover. Oh, really? Uh, it was one of the most... <laughs> so I apologize I wasn't on my, right. my A game. Um, and I had some tapes okay. I had to return, so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but all... when we reappear, I'll be on my A game. Yeah, sure. Yeah, we we were all very struck by Thomas's face reveal as well. We were all a bit shocked <laughs> with that. <laughs> I, oh yeah, and, and by which uh, we all just mean um, I was on camera for the first time ever, yeah. a little bit like Thomas Pynchon. Yeah, <laughs> exactly like Pynchon. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, uh, anyway, that, yeah. Without, I'm sorry, double damn. Oh. I wanted to express <laughs> some profanity. Uh, today we're doing two films in the Star Trek universe. Uh, the first one being Star Trek IV, Voyage Home in 1986, starring and directed by Leonard Nimoy. Yes. And we'll follow that up with the second in our pairing, Star Trek First Contact, directed and starring and Jonathan Frakes. 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 Riker. Frakes. We got Spock and Riker directing movies. Uh, well, universe. So, yeah. And this both, you know, what they both have in common, they're both directed by that ship's first officer, mm -hmm. who would then go on to direct, or who had, by the time of their career, directed two Star Trek films. Uh, so this would be the second one for Nimoy, and this would be mm -hmm. the first of two for Frakes. Yep. They both include time travel and mm -hmm. new enterprise is introduced. The E mm -hmm. and the A. Both have nuclear vessels. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, both have rock and roll played loud. Mm -hmm. 
You have a Vulcan, not Spock, who comes to Earth for diplomatic reasons. Yeah. You have an alien uh-huh. vessel and a geometric shape. Mm-hmm. The crew in both votes unanimously on a decision that starts the film and leads to Earth. Both uh, have crew repairs to a ship that is not theirs. Both aliens make a noise like a fetal heart monitor. Uh, that's before in the original series, the ship's DJ accounts for salinity and atmospheric factors. And you find out that it is a, a whale song. Um, both of them have the the classic can ticking time clock. Uh, Mm -hmm. both have a woman from another time teleported aboard the starship. Mm-hmm. Both have uh, people in the past who mistake the Enterprise crew as a foreign army. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Both have quotes from classic literature, Shakespeare, Melville. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's dream sequences in both. But we'll have to talk about the cloud <laughs> sequence at Voyage Home. Yeah, I don't know what, I'm, I'm really not sure what that sequence was, frankly. But <laughs> You could argue amazing is what it was. <laughs> uh, you mean the the chia pet thing where the they're all coming up? The, the Lion King in the clouds moment, <laughs> yeah. where like all their heads show up as clouds. Yeah, that's oh, weird. <laughs> good lord! Yeah, yeah um, I do secretly love that scene. That is quite bizarre, but there's a lot of bizarre things going on in that movie. <laughs> I, I not so secretly love that scene. Yeah, because I, I still don't get it. It's great. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant. It really is. Um, so uh, let's start off in 1986, the year of Heartburn and Heartbreak Ridge and Manhunter and Peggy Sue got married. Sure. Big year. Yeah. Is this So, uh, Martin, are you coming in on this uh, as a first watch? Oh, no, I've seen all the Star Trek films at least twice, I think. Um, this one I've probably seen... The most, possibly. I haven't kept count, but it was on TV literally a few weeks ago as well, and I watched it and watched it through to the end. I you know, turned it on like when they were in 1986 and watched it till the end, so <laughs> that mm-hmm. was always fun. Um, I think this one, yes, it is part of like the even-numbered good Star Trek films, but I would say it's probably one of the weakest of the even-numbered good ones. Would you agree with that? Or <laughs> Um, I, I think it, in a lot of ways, it's both the weakest and also, um, one of the, the strongest as far as entertainment value. Um, I think it's the one that, uh, really breached the, the divide between like nerds, Star Trek nerds, and then the general public, because it's just, you know, it, it's not just a movie for people who are Star Mm -hmm. Trek fans, but people like my mom or my wife, you know? You don't like that shit. Yeah. And I would say that's true of both films that we're discussing today. Mm-hmm. But yeah. we're at ranks. I'm going to leave that until we get to, as in a nod to film versus film, the, the point system <laughs> later on. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'll let uh, you so, go in the ship. This is your podcast. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh. Unlike- Engage. Engage. <laughs> Earl Grey? Well, uh, so this week, I want to talk about that when we decided we were going to do this episode with you, Martin, I watched yeah. Generations because it's kind of the bridge film. It's still fucking terrible. Um, <laughs> and then this week, uh, I went a bit crazy. I watched, this is the order I watched them in. I watched 
Number five, The Final Frontier, which still sucks. Yeah. Uh, six, The Undiscovered Country, which is still great. Um, then I watched The Space Seed. Then I watched The Wrath of Khan. Uh, then I watched Search for Spock and then Voyage Home. And then I watched Best of Both Worlds, The Generation, Two-Parter, I, Hugh, the Borg episode from season five of Next Generation. And then I watched First wow. Contact. Um, and then I fit in the musical episode of Strange New Worlds as well. So, uh, the most Star Trek I've ever watched in a single week. Wow, that's a lot of Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. My hands are both cramped permanently into the live long and prosper sign so (laughs) it makes driving really tough yeah i find it ironic that they always pick actors to play spock that can't do the sign very well they apparently they always have to have tape on those actors you know is that um, a fact zachary quinto and Leonard nomoy couldn't do it very well uh it seemed like danny devito uh who we covered this season could do it pretty well as the penguin so maybe they should just let him (laughs) <laughs> Danny DeVito for the next Spock. <laughs> he could play old Spock, couldn't he? And they could just explain uh, some sort of gravi- gravity, uh, something about gravity on the planet. He's yeah, he would that do that shrunk. portal that they have in mm. Phantasm <laughs> that shrinks people. <laughs> <laughs> there you uh, go. <laughs> all right. Great casting. So I think in our text back and forth, we established that research is futile, but... Uh, was did you do any research on this one, Ken? You, you have anything about Nicholas Myers or I did Eddie a, Murphy? A ton. Um, if we go back a few years to Star Trek: The Motion Picture, um, which made a little money, but nobody really liked it. Um, I still like the motion picture. I think once slow cinema fans uh, figure it out, it, it might have a renaissance. Um. Paramount took Roddenberry off of the sequel for number two. Um, he had originally wanted a city on the edge of forever time travel story where they have to make sure Kennedy gets killed in 1963. Um, nobody liked that idea. They ended that's up using terrible, one of- no, wait, That's a terrible idea. When it comes right, to so, time travel, we're going to talk about a lot of terrible ideas, and okay, that is so, one of them. But they do they do use one of the plot points from that idea in First Contact because um, they are in warp when the Klingons go back in time and change human history. And because they were in warp, they were outside of what the, uh, the Klingons changed. So they're kind of a, a ship out of time and almost a parallel timeline, um, which they kind of use in First Contact. Now, Martin, just to let you know, uh, we have presidents here in the States, and they're elected by the people, and Kennedy was one of those, and he was assassinated um, during his term as president. And I could not verify this, but in Roddenberry's treatment, um, Spock ends up being the person on the grassy knoll, (laughs) (laughs) which is horrific um but really he wanted something that he thought what people liked about star trek was klingons action time travel um and then the episode that harlan ellison wrote city on the edge of forever he was kind of trying to replicate that um nobody liked it they handed over to harv bennett a tv producer at paramount um they basically had a budget that was slashed um he wasn't familiar with it with star trek um he went back and watched the original series and obviously the space seed uh, episode inspired the plot. Um, mm. Brilliant idea. Uh, Star Trek two was, was a, a huge success. 
and led to Star Trek, which led to three movies that form a trilogy within a larger series, two, three, and four, um, that Bennett had a huge part in, both um, as producer and stories. Uh, he would go on to write Star Trek Three, which would be Nimoy's first film as director. And I think Three is great. I think it kind of breaks the even number is the only good ones, but that's just me. Um, and then they both decided they wanted something without a villain for the new one. They had gotten too grim and, and too action-oriented, and they wanted a environmental theme story. They had a bunch of different ideas. Thomas, I don't know if you read any of the ideas that they had about going back to a different time period and having be a disease that they have to stop. Um, Eddie Murphy was at one point going to be in it. Yeah, Eddie or, Murphy, hot off of 48 Hours and Pebble Hills Cop, uh-huh. was a big Trek fan. And so they were going to write him as an English professor who loves whale song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and do you know any of this, Martin? No, I don't know. Oh, let me blow oh, your yeah. mind. Okay, so Eddie Murphy was going to be part of Star Trek IV, um, and he's going to be part of the comedic relief. There was also going to be a reporter who didn't believe him, the, the literature professor. And what they end up doing is consolidating all three of those characters down to just the marine biologist, Dr. Gillian Taylor, mm-hmm. who uh, has all three roles. But originally, like uh, Eddie Murphy was going to steal a phaser and was going to come back to uh, the reporter's house and the reporter's cat was going to, well, maybe they have like some romantic thing going on. The reporter's cat was going to accidentally hit the uh, phaser and destroy all the furniture in the apartment. Really? Uh, there was a lot of things that were just cut out, but eventually uh, Eddie Murphy <laughs> was going to be too too large of a presence um, yeah. for the film itself, yeah. and decided to do uh, Golden Child instead. Yeah, it was it was supposed to start out with the uh, the Klingon ship uncloaking above the <laughs> above the Super Bowl, and everybody <laughs> thinks it's part of the halftime show, uh, except Eddie I Murphy, who becomes kind of obsessed with that there are aliens, there be aliens here. Um, Completely ridiculous. And then uh, Nimoy came up with the the whale idea. Yeah. Um, which is which if you ever watch the preview, uh, I'm sorry, like the trailer for this film, there's only one shot of a whale, uh, like a fin coming into frame. Otherwise, right. they, uh, the crew kept it underneath wraps and Nimoy would only say like, they had to go back in time to save two creatures. Mm-hmm. Because they really liked right. the idea of something really big that they had to save, but also the ecological message. And when you try and recap this movie, which I'll challenge either of you to do within one minute, mm-hmm. when as soon as you put back, once you put time travel, 1986, and you're like, okay, sure, sure, to save whales, <laughs> like people's heads just explode. Like that, oh, it's just yeah. one, it's a hat on top of a hat on top of a sombrero. It's just one too many things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, but... Um, they, they kind of pull it off. They do. And yeah. Nicholas Myers, uh, so he directed the second, he directed Rathokan, and he and Harv uh, worked on this, where Harv wrote the bookends, the stuff from mm-hmm. uh, the trial on both sides of things. And Nicholas Myers, whose first film was Time After Time, the time travel movie that has was H.G. Wells and Jack the Ripper in San Francisco in 1979. Oh, I love that movie so much. <laughs> wrote all the middle stuff and was able to reuse some of the ideas that got cut out of Time After Time, including the punk rock on punk rocker on a bus scene. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
I mean, <laughs> so David Warner, who plays Jack the Ripper, would go on to play uh, an alien in Star Trek Five, or not an alien without makeup. And then Myers would actually cast him again in the subsequent movie, Number Six, um, as an alien. So he appears in subsequent Star Trek films as different characters. I'm guessing Myers cast him to kind of apologize for yeah. being a number five. Probably. <laughs> well, Meyer, five was interesting, right? And again, mm. uh, Shatner on the hood of your roof of your car right there. <laughs> uh, um, Meyer told Nimoy that he should stick to his guns if he was and and direct three or walk from the movie. And mm-hmm. the studio really had no uh, choice but to let him. Uh, because everybody loves Spock. Spock's one of the biggest Ooh. things going for him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Nimoy had previously done a directed uh, Shatner in a TJ Hooker episode. And he had done some television movies, including a production of his Van Gogh show that he had one man developed. So Nimoy was ready. Like I, uh, in preparation, I read uh, Leonard, My 50-Year Friendship with a Remarkable Man by William Shatner. It's a little self-serving, it seems like, on Shatner's point. But uh, yeah, at this point in his career, Leonard Nimoy didn't really want much more to do with Spock. He had his own way of mm. making his income and had gone on after the series to do like Mission Impossible and other things. And Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the San Francisco yeah. set remake, one of my favorites. Uh-huh. Yeah, and he's fantastic in that movie. Yeah, and then after this... He would go on to direct one of the biggest American box office hit in 1987. I don't know if it, if it had the same popularity across the way there, Martin, but it, it right. surpassed Fatal Attraction. It grossed more than $100 million, which is big at the time. And it's yeah. a remake of a French film, um, Three Men and a Baby. Ah, uh, yes, that's the one. <laughs> wow, that, I, I watched yeah. that last year. Does it hold up? It it is such a time capsule to 1987 <laughs> that it's it's hard not to love from that point of view. It's it's pretty silly though. It's I mean, I think that this yeah. film is the same thing, right? I, I mean, do I think too. that the, I think that the essence of this film and what makes it amazing is that it's maybe one of the worst Star Trek films, and maybe one of the best. And it just depends yeah. on which way you squint and look at it, right? That's uh, a great. That's a great description of it, it. Yeah, it's it's definitely one of the weirdest Star Trek films. Yeah, it has like the most accessibility, you know, with all the fish out of water stuff in the eighties and but I mean like the probe looks like a licorice uh black pudding, you know. <laughs> 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 Trying to check on the whales if they're still mm-hmm. there. It's just it's quite bizarre the whole plot. Um I mean I'm interested. Did Nimoy and the producers have I don't know, an interest in envir- envir- uh, in, in environmental issues at the time, or is this... Yeah, yeah. I'm going to pull yeah, right. this quote from the 50-year mission, the first 25 years. I have like a bunch of books sitting around me. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, this is from Leonard Nimoy. Uh, I was asked to do Star Trek Four before Star Trek Three even opened. I had some constraints wow. on Star Trek Three. I was told flat out that... Uh, I was told flat out, though, for Star Trek Four, they wanted my vision on this. This is a Leonard Nimoy film, is what the studio mm-hmm. told him. And he had come up with an ecological message. He came up with the whales, and then they wrote everything around that. Like That's how they helped crack the time travel story. Yeah. Wow. And originally, Shatner was, wasn't going to do it. Um, and then really? they had to, to bump up 
Yeah, they they talked about doing um, a Starfleet Academy movie when they're all young. Yeah. Um, but once uh, you know Shatner got a raise, that's all it was. It wasn't yeah. like a creatively. I don't want to play Captain Cook anymore. It was it was he wanted more money. Um, mm-hmm. And which is weird because all the cast got a bump, which led Paramount to think we need to have a new Star Trek with cheaper stars, which and led did. to development of the next generation. So, um, yeah, all of this stuff is so entwined in really interesting ways. Now, that I mean, said, did, uh, did Star Trek three like, was that successful? Because, I mean, in this one, A Voyage Home, it does feel like the budget was knocked down a lot here. <laughs> I mean, was that part of the reason why they go back to the, you know, the current day in 1986 because they were like yeah i don't i don't think until jj abrams did his reboot in 2009 i don't think any of the star trek movies were super high budget priorities for paramount yeah Um, two parts to that martin they got an extra 10 million dollars to do this film over oh yeah over three over the search for spock that's interesting uh but the uh does that that go straight to salaries though (laughs) I think a lot of them went to the salaries, uh, but one of the reasons that Nimoy was so attractive to Paramount at the time was that he brought this film in, I think, four days ahead of shooting schedule and a million dollars less. Oh, wow. That's some Eastwood shit right there. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So the third one was financially successful. Uh, I think at that point, it went from the highs of Wrath of Khan to being more of a niche film series and then... Uh, the next one that we're talking about kind of brought in even more people mm. to the party as far as film goers go. Yeah. And, and one of the things that they were able to do is save money just by shooting it present day. So they had fewer sets that they had to do. But all of that water stuff was ex- very expensive. Um, they mm-hmm. had to uh, fill up tanks and the practical effects on it are pretty amazing. But one of the things that they did that I thought was pretty fun is they wanted to have the chopper carrying the transparent aluminum. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm not having a stroke. That's actually what the material is. Yeah. Uh, they, they have transparent aluminum that they want to fly in and they want a helicopter to do it. And they want to have uh, the bay in the background. But the city of San Francisco said you can't do that. Like you, like it, Or they had all the permits would be really expensive. So they, they used something and they needed uh, to give Sulu something to do as well, I suppose. <laughs> true, true. And so... Uh, they um, went to Japan and they got a, uh, a robot control model uh, helicopter that would be the same, same Huey. Yeah. And they used that and it's just forced perspective uh-huh. in the shot that you see it flying. And it looks great. Like yeah. uh, still to this day, without touching it up like Lucas or somebody, it still looks great. Um, and it's hard oh, to yeah. tell that it's a model. Yeah. Oh, okay. I did not know it was a model. Mm. Mm, and they right. they have no whales in this film as well, which is the other surprising thing. They had no whales. It's all right. animatronics. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can tell they're animatronics. Yeah, I certainly when the whale the the tail comes out of the water, it's um, yeah, it's a tad clunky, but it's still very charming. Um, I always kind of like that stuff. So. I really like the uh, the whale uh, when Spock jumps into the tank at the. Uh, at the place and is doing the mind meld with the oh, that's, whale. That's one of the funniest scenes for me. That's so great. Yeah. Just seeing Shatner's reaction. <laughs> Even though it's a bit <laughs> overall, it's a bit much from Shatner, but it's still, it's still brilliant. I think <laughs> it is. And what's having watched all these movies, like uh, the second and the third one are really about captain Kirk 
feeling old. Yeah. Um, feeling he lost a little bit of, of what he had when he was younger. Um, and to put him in this movie where it's lighter and also he, he's, he's a little not ahead of the game because you know, the double damn on you stuff, he's kind of a fish out of water and he's, it's a little uncomfortable for him as a character, but it really benefits the story as a whole, I think as far as. Yeah. I would say some of the harder parts in the film for me is where uh, he has to be forefront. I mean, that's one of the things they said was difficult in writing it was that he always has to come up with the answer as the captain uh-huh. and yeah. he has to be there at the end for no good reason with set. I, this movie has five endings, I think. <laughs> yeah. uh, but whenever Lieutenant, uh, no, it's not Savick. Uh, who is it? Uh, who's um, Spock's dad? Sarek. Yeah. Sarek, uh, yeah. Yeah. Whenever Sarek and Spock are talking at the end, Kirk is just like hanging out right there, listening in. It's kind <laughs> yeah. of a dick move, right? Like, Give some guy some privacy, but also the saving of them underwater. Apparently, uh-huh. uh, Shatner did those. That, that's all Shatner. That's not a stunt double. Really? And he was holding his breath for long periods of time. It might be unsafe. Um, but uh, yeah, it just like they gave, they gave him a little too much. I don't know. I think that this is, they did a good job of spreading it out, even giving Sulu something to do in this film. Well, yeah, I was, I, I, I think Sulu does get the short shrift here. Like he ain't like all the other characters have like a great comedy scene. You have, you know, uh, Scotty and uh, Bones going to the factory, the glass factory. <laughs> and mm-hmm. one of my favorite scenes is when, you know, Scotty is uh, talking to the computer and he's like, computer, you know, and <laughs> gives him the mouse and he just speaks into the mouse computer. You know, that is so great. Uh, and then apparently he's extremely proficient in 20th century uh, keyboards. Uh, but there uh, you go. <laughs> yeah, he's able to just use his fingers and henpeck calculations yeah. <laughs> up. He has all the macros or something. He's hitting like Apple control stuff going on yeah. there, I guess. Yeah. Yep. And then you obviously have uh, Chekhov and Ohura uh, going to the uh, Navy ship Enterprise. And you have all the nuclear vessel, you know, comedy stuff. Um, uh-huh. and, and even Bones gets an, an extra one with, uh, you know, Jillian Bones and, and Kirk going to the hospital trying to save Chekhov where Bones is just appalled by, you know, all the surgeons butchery. Mm-hmm. And that's always great. And he gives out a pill. He gives out a pill. And then when they're leaving, she's in a wheelchair. She's healed. Oh my god, so funny! Yeah, and um, she says she she actually says the the dialogue is elderly patient. The doctor gave me a pill and I grew a new kidney. The doctor <laughs> gave me a pill and I grew a new kidney. Enter number one in disbelief, walking ahead of the patient, fully yeah. functional. Enter number two, incredulous, fully functional. <laughs> That's great. But, I mean, Sulu doesn't really get a comedy scene, which I'm a bit gutted for him, really. He just has a, a little conversation with a helicopter pilot, and that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. Or George Takai in this. But uh, Walter Ko- uh, Koenig, the um, Chekhov, uh, is, was so happy that he finally got something to do, and he finally felt like he was part of the cast. Yeah. And he mm-hmm. really gets a lot in here, which is great because of the Cold War at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think it helps remind people who might have been following the franchise that, yes, uh, uh, this is something that they were tackling back in the late 60s and still mm-hmm. is around with us today. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I, other than Sulu, another thing these two films that we're talking about have in common is I, I think it gives the ensemble the most to do out of all the other movies that they made, um, particularly the the original crew. Uh, this one feels like it, it's the most ensemble where their little side missions actually play into the larger story. Yeah. Um, and they have value. like some of the other movies, like um, I don't remember anybody's side story other than Chekhov in Star Trek two um, and Star Trek three is, is pretty much the same way. And number five, number five, they try to give them, but it's, it's like Sulu and Chekhov following a hot Klingon around the bridge. It's really cartoonish <laughs> in number five. Yeah. Um, and then Uhura doing her dance. It's just a big nope. Uh, but this one, this one, they're all great. They all have their little bits other than Sulu. Um, yeah, yeah, I've not seen the fifth one in a long time. I don't particularly want to really. But I think J.J. Abrams, the, his films kind of split, you know, gave all the crew a lot to do in those films, I would say, as well. Um, especially the first one. Yeah, the, the, the first one is, is the good one, right? Yeah. The second one's with Sherlock. Not as good. Terrible. Yeah, I wouldn't well, say terrible. <laughs> It's just they overplayed their hand with the nostalgia in the second one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, uh, very earthbound. Which the two films we're talking about now are, are particularly earthbound as well. Mm. Uh, time travel and being mostly set on Earth, which is kind of weird for a, uh, something called Star Trek. Yeah. So, uh, what do you think of the direction, Martin, for this film? Um, I think Nimoy does a really great job, I think. I think, you know, I don't think he overplays his hand with being too fancy. Um, you know, keeps it fairly simple with the comedy stuff. Um, yeah, I, th- I think he does a great job. I think maybe the only things I would say is that at times, like after the comedy scenes are done, they do force in a few like suspense scenes with like the whalers filing at firing at the whales near the end but mm-hmm. like the cloaked Klingon ship kind of stops it and like earlier you could easily have cut out the hospital scene so there are a few scenes that feel a little forced but they could be improved by just quickening up the pace a little bit I would say um, and even like the first half hour like you spend a good half an hour 40 minutes before you get to 1986 so you know it does drag a little bit in the first half hour i would say but overall i I would say it's pretty good yeah i uh, so i watched this is my wife's first time watching this she watched it with me and we have a friend who turns out to be a trek fan (laughs) a big trekkie uh as we're watching and i could see visibly uh like her entire like her reception of the film change her like as she's like engaging with it after they go back in time like by the whenever they're doing the slingshot to go back in time, everything changes for her, and she's into the movie. But that first, mm. that first bit is a slog, I think, for someone who's not. Yeah, uh, she also knew nothing about it. Like I, I, I had her in like a media blackout, so she wouldn't know what was going to happen <laughs> aside from they go back in time. Because you have like the first, the opening scene, isn't it? Is where, like, one of the ships. Um, what's the first ship called that gets? Um, loses its power. I can't remember. Well, it, oh yeah, uh, it has like a new alien that I haven't seen before, and a captain that I haven't seen before. Yeah, yeah, that mm-hmm. loses power, and then it, it we move on quickly to 
like the space station that loses power and then it gets to earth i'm like mm-hmm. we need all you know two of those examples before we get to earth i'm not sure <laughs> and then we get the court scene as well yeah yeah that's the problem when you've got to resolve things that have happened from the third movie and the second one as well to a certain extent so with all the genesis stuff so the klingons not being happy at all <laughs> still um yeah and, you know. and kurt and spock taking the three computer test <laughs> yeah failing failing where i would fail where it's asked he's asked how do you feel <laughs> <laughs> yeah that that is kind of a little funny to me when i watch that because the questions are asked like really quickly and the computer voice is really high pitched <laughs> so it is a little funny <laughs> um yeah yeah, it's totally um, a different movie. I think it's like a. I think the first bit of this does feel like a Star Trek movie. Oh, yeah. it, which it, I think it helps set up, which maybe helps set up the comedic effect of the middle of this film. I, I'm not too sure. The the first hour of Return of the Jedi, which literally right. has nothing to do with the bulk of the story, it yeah. is more concerned about wrapping up what happened before. If you had not seen the other, the first, the one right before it, right before you watched it, it would be completely confusing what they were doing. Mm. Um, and this kind of suffers the same way a little bit. But I had just watched the third one, so I was fine with it. Yeah, well, well it's okay I also... if you do it like that. That's Obviously, that's how you, you, you're supposed to watch them in, in order. Um, but I think you don't need necessarily to, a ship and a space station to lose power before we really get what's going on with this uh, black pudding in space. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially as you get the Earth being attacked as well, right? <laughs> like that could have just been yeah. sufficient. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's it's interesting. The movie we're talking about next is a bit similar in having to to catch people up a little bit, uh, but mm. gets to it maybe a lot quicker. Oh yeah. Um, so my experience watching this, I think the same night you did, Thomas, was my wife had never seen it before, um, and almost the exact same reaction. Yeah, it's almost like it's almost like the eyes quit, like the glaze disappears from their eyes with the clouds, and they're like, "What the fuck am I watching now?" <laughs> it's like the king in um, Lord of the Rings with uh, the worm tongues uh, spell slowly drifts away, and the milky eyes disappear, uh... <laughs> and they become ten, fifteen, twenty years younger. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dude, do we want to try to do a 60-second synopsis of this oh, wait. movie? I have one here. Oh, okay. You ready? Let's see if this will come through. <laughs> well, it, it kind of goes on like that for another 60 oh. seconds. <laughs> eight seconds. You did it in eight seconds. Uh, Amazing. I totally got that. Yeah. <laughs> Originally, they wanted that message to be subtitled. Uh huh. Wow, really? <laughs> and Nimoy fought back hard not to have that subtitled, and it was coming to bl- like it was it was a big debate between the studio execs, and they were like, "No, no one's going to know what it says." Well, and they're just like, "Yes, leave a little bit of a mystery." Yeah. Excuse me, Earth. We haven't had a signal from your humpback whales anytime soon. Where are your whales? Come on. But it's also, but it's also to the whales themselves. So it must be like, uh-huh. did I leave the coffee pot on? Are the dishes <laughs> in the dishwasher clean? Like I've been gone for a while. I forgot. I need to come back yeah. to make sure that I'm not going to burn the Earth down. 
<laughs> or it's yeah. DoorDash. I have an order of shrimp. <laughs> and yeah. where am I delivering yeah. this to? <laughs> that would go with the black pudding, right? Uh, <laughs> right. Is there a Gracie here? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, yeah, that's what these actually the little ball that he's carrying. That's what it yes. is. Doordash. Yeah, three tons of shrimp for a Gracie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, and uh, why, man, and what a dated reference. George and Gracie being what? George Burns and Gracie. Not Grace Kelly. Alan? Who is, uh, what's that? Alan. Gracie Alan. Alan. Yeah, thank you. From, uh, from Radio Days? Like, mm-hmm. wow. Yeah, uh, George Burns. The the old guy who played God in more than one movie. Oh God, you devil! Yeah. Oh God. Oh God. Oh, doesn't John Denver? Anyway, we're getting way far afield. Never mind. Yeah. I don't have a one minute for this. <laughs> I thought that was it. Oh, okay. Good. <laughs> I'm glad you all got that. Then it's the Star Trek with the giant space cigar that they have to go back in time and save whales. Otherwise the giant space cigar will destroy the planet because it's looking for whales. that dropped off millions of years ago. Do we know that they dropped them off millions of years ago? Like the whales could have evolved during that time and gone off to space themselves. Hmm. I don't know. I thought that, well, in the movie they say that the time it took, for the whales when they went extinct on planet earth that they they surmised that the probe was coming because they lost contact with them yeah okay and it just it just it was just a really slow giant are, pudding and are are whales the narcs of the universe <laughs> are they just ratting on us <laughs> um it's possible does, does anybody have uh, a notion of what humpback whales are, are doing today? Oh, they're much, they're doing much better. <laughs> okay. I mean, like what they're doing today, like productively. No, I mean, numbers wise, I know that what Japan, Iceland and Finland still do whaling. Is that right? Not a clue. <laughs> okay. Um, I was watching this movie and, and my wife was doing whaling research while she right. was watching it. And I have heard some of those stats. So nobody knows, Thomas. I I had information from Noah here, which is our, not the guy from the Bible, but is our national oceanic something, something agency. Uh, yeah, they, they, they haven't quite bounced back. But there was a moratorium on commercial harvest since 1985. And uh, they're definitely doing better than they did back at the time of Star Trek. By the end of the episode, I'll have numbers. What else do we need to talk about? Oh, script. Are we going to rate? Are we going to um, give? Um, are we going to rate the script? I do have one thing to say about the script. It has one of the weirdest presented screenplay. Uh, credits on the opening credits that I've ever seen. Right. Um, it has the story by, and then it has the original two writers, blank and and, and then the word and appears before uh, Nicholas Meyer and whoever he got the co-credit for. Um, usually the people who get the credit for writing it, they all get the same credit. Uh, but this one had story by, and then two separate credits for the actual screenplay distributed between four different people. 
which may go into the development process of this movie and the scripts. Um, all of that being said, it's amazing how how the script is is pretty simple and um, it doesn't seem that worked over to my watching yeah. anyway. Yeah, they. I mean, there were things that they cut out, like um, uh, the it's not Savick and it's not Spock, the other Vulcan that shows up who leaves. She has a co- quick conversation with uh, with Kirk about being pregnant, which would set it up for a later later bit. But I oh, want yeah, to because yeah, because Spock uh, in the original series had that um, that horny episode. <laughs> Time will it's called. Yeah. Um, and it was um, intimated that Savick helped Spock out on Genesis when he was going through that rapid evolution because of being on that planet. Um, I don't know how that would work time-wise in that movie, but... And she was knocked up, yeah. I'm glad they well, cut that out, because yeah. that's weird. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah but that would be a lot of weird in this weird film. <laughs> so. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so there's... Uh, there are five endings I, I counted to this film and, uh, it's, I, I think it was part of, um, Harv, uh, Bennett w- really liking to have bookend openings and closings. Mm-hmm. So if you show something at the beginning, you kind of need to show at the end as well. Yeah. But the, the first ending I would say is when they decloak in front of the uh so the whales have been let out to alaska and there's a whalers coming after them and their harpoons mm-hmm. are ready and i didn't realize a harpoon gun looked like that that thing looked like some action hero toy <laughs> hasbro <laughs> gun right uh-huh yeah it's it's terrible uh and so the uh you think that one of you think either gracie or uh god are going to get hit George, we're gonna get hit, and um, boom! It, it, the the harpoon fires, but it bounces off the hole of the mm. uh, ship that the Enterprise has taken over, the Klingon war vessel, as it decloaks, and the they're vessel. of course really confused, and they take the they take the wells, they save them. So that's one ending. Then you have your time travel return, and they get back safely, and that's an ending. And then you have a trial, and I was thinking like. Does this happen in other Star Treks? It feels like a trope where your punishment's actually your reward because they kick Kirk down a rank and give him a new ship as his punishment. <laughs> mm-hmm. They give him what he wants. Yeah. And then you have the Savic uh, Spock's dad and Spock saying goodbye. And then you have the whole crew on a um, um, a shuttle going to their ship. And that's when you reveal they have a brand new enterprise for them. And that's the the final ending of the film. This triumph on top of a triumph on top of a triumph. Well, I think you yeah. kind of needed an extra bit after, you know, they decloak in Alaska because you can't leave them in on Earth, can you really? So they would need they would definitely need to come back to their own time. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting how you said that the, I mean, the the different parts of the movie are written by Bennett and Meyer. That really the the beginning and the ending is, is tying up all the the plot threads and a lot of thematic character stuff that began in the second movie. Yeah, and kind of everything wraps up by the end of this movie. 
but yeah, the middle of it when they're in 1986 almost has nothing to do with that. Right. Um, so it's like like the the, the bookends are the sequel, and, and the middle is is almost a standalone story. Yeah, and I guess as a viewer, uh, maybe a viewer coming in having never seen any others, like uh, our spouses can uh, that book in like that last bit, the five endings helps justify the first bit mm-hmm. of the film as well in a way that's really unique. Like I can't think of another film that really has that type of structure where it's like another film hidden inside of a film uh, mm-hmm. that's part of a, that's the fourth in a series, but really the end of a trilogy. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is very unusual. Um it's almost like it, when you read a really long book and there's a section in the book that is away from the action of the main narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It feels a little more, I'm not calling it literary, but as, as a device, it feels less screenplay-ish and maybe a little more literary. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I wonder but, if there was uh, original ideas in the third film where they did come back in the Klingon ship to earth and then had the trial in the third movie because I th- I, if i seem to remember the third film isn't particularly long so i do wonder whether they were just on purpose you know holding those scenes back and and trying to work them out in the fourth film and they ended up you know booking bookending those scenes in this movie i don't know if it was originally planned for the third one there were a lot of early ideas for the trial of, of James Kirk in this movie that they repurposed for Undiscovered Country, right. um, which uses a lot of that material and a lot of those ideas because that's, that's a trial and he actually goes to a penal colony and all of that. Yeah. Um, it's amazing the development of both these movies, how many, how many ideas they didn't use, how many ideas would later be repurposed. Um, I, I don't know how actual movies get made from that chaotic of a development process, but it's pretty good. Yeah. Any favorite lines? Double damn on you. <laughs> it's pretty good. Uh, uh, I'll give you a hundred dollars. Is that a lot? <laughs> <laughs> that, the comedic timing on that is great. Or uh, when the marine biologist says to Spock, sure you won't change your mind. And Spock says, is there something wrong with the one I have? <laughs> yeah, that's great. But I think the all-time best one is the uh, Iowa line, right? Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, you're from outer space. No, I'm from no, Iowa. No, I'm from <laughs> Iowa. I only work in outer space. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the improvised, do you like Italian stuff between oh, yeah, Spock yeah. and Kirk? The no, yes, yes, no. Uh-huh. Apparently- so much of that comedy could just go so wrong and be so arch and terrible. Um, the fact that these actors have the chemistry they have, it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty cool that it works so well. Yeah. Cause Nimoy said, yeah, he never direct and act in a film. It's terrible. It's a terrible experience. Cause he has to like <laughs> do two hours of makeup, right? Remember he's on in a scene and he's uh-huh. like, it's just exhausting. Don't, I would recommend nobody ever do it. But he had the good fortune, he said, of having a crew that already knew their characters and knew their uh, cadence. Yeah. And so it made it a lot easier to be the director of that, uh, of, uh, of three and four. Hmm. Yeah, oh, it's a lot cool. easier to, to do it that way, isn't it, in a franchise? Because um, you, you definitely have to lean on, on the rest of your crew a little bit when you're acting and directing at the same time. 
Um, another line I like is, I think he did a little too much LDS. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And the confidence that he gives with it, right? Yeah. As, as Kirk gives that line, trying to say LSD for Spock acting weird yeah. to the brain biologist is an excuse. Yeah. And even, uh, why, it's not even a line, but before they go uh, into San Francisco and uh, Kirk is like to everyone, oh, I don't think uh, they've seen an extraterrestrial before. And Nimoy just gets the uh, the the rope on his on his uh, what do you call it, and then just covers his ears, and no one says anything. <laughs> just the <laughs> the acting like from uh, Kirk is brilliant. He's like, well, that's not any better. <laughs> but it yeah. I also uh, one of the questions because this is whenever yeah. uh, my wife Lee got engaged. She all of a sudden said, like, do you think if they landed in Portland now, Portland, <laughs> Oregon now, anyone would bat an eye? Because the, one of the great comedy, some of the great comedy in this is that no one really questions what the fuck are you wearing, Spock? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> well, he's wearing a, a robe in San Francisco in 1986. Um, With a headband, right. a little bit like Karate uh-huh. Kid. So it kind of, it, yeah, it's, but all of them are dressed wildly. None of them, like, sometimes it seems like they go into, in some of the Star Trek episodes, they'll go and, like, get clothes from the era or local clothes. They didn't bother, uh-huh. well, I guess because they're on a Klingon warship, they don't bother with that, right? But yeah. they have no, like, self-awareness of, like, how strange they look. And at no point do they go, oh, we need to, like, get some uh, civilian garb. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which they do in First Contact. So he makes it, the, uh, you know, Picard is very clear on his, you know, the transport you know, before they go into the transport, that they need specific clothes for this. They don't even bother mm-hmm. trying to get the right clothes. But it's also a brilliant touch with that $100, that quote that they bring back to the benefit of the script. Like they bring back uh, McCoy's gift from, I think, the second one. And part of this uh-huh. aging, right? Is yeah, that he yeah. has his glasses. Uh, yeah, and he, so yeah. he, I think he does he use the lens to create a fire or something, or he loses the lenses somehow, right? They break. It like breaks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, either Rathacon or Search for Spock. They all get yeah. jumbled together. Yeah, and so then, yeah, he's able to sell those in this movie to be able to have a hundred dollars. <laughs> also, I was trying to do the math for 1986. I'm like, is that a lot? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> but it's hundred dollars between them. I'm pretty sure that's not a lot. <laughs> well, for bus fare, I well, guess exact around. change. Yeah. <laughs> what what is exact change? <laughs> Oh, um, I think my favorite though is it's better for me. It's better for you. It's better for them. <laughs> I so uh, if we want to jump to acting, I uh, I feel like a lot of the tele- some of this suffers from some television acting, and I'm glad we don't have Eddie Murphy in it, only because it would be yeah. that a pretty big disparity. Mm-hmm. It would seem between acting styles and just presence. But yeah, uh, as much as I hate it, like conceptually i like the idea that all three of those characters got put together for a woman of the week trope uh for the uh for the marine biologist and like part of this film is captain kirk having to seduce not like Mm -hmm. fully romantically but convince somebody on earth that he's charming (laughs) and not crazy (laughs) yeah and works in outer space so that he Uh can help 
help uh, help out. And it's it's a, that that dinner scene, the Italian dinner scene, is great for that. Like it, I think mm-hmm. it's yeah. probably some of Shatner's best acting. Yeah, I, I I would agree. And really putting his character kind of um, he's he's always such a, a pillar of strength and knowing what needs to be done and and being um, you know such a tactical genius. Um, that putting him a bit behind the eight ball where he has to convince somebody um, is kind of a wrinkle throughout all the films that is unique to this one. Um, it's a different flavor of Kirk, definitely. And it works really well. Yeah. And he definitely like he's on side with the with the other um, human characters in this in 86, like in the hospital when McCoy is being really rude to the surgeons He's like, oh, come, come here, guys. I'm really sorry about this dreadful behavior. Come with me, you know. And he just, <laughs> you know, <laughs> shepherds them very easily into the room and locks them in. Um, so he, he's he, he knows how to like manipulate the people on Earth in this time, you know, more than the other characters. So that's what, you know, he has some more uniqueness here in that regard. In this and that's the only the only use of a phaser in the film, I believe, is when he uses it to lock that door. Yep, when you shoot a lock yeah. off of a door, it's it makes it so you can't open it. <laughs> yep, that's how it works. Uh, what's also fascinating about the uh, Italian scene and talking about acting is that uh, the doctor he plays across from, Catherine Hicks, uh, never watched a Star Trek before and did not want to. So that really? she would be as gobsmacked about what's going on and confused as a person in 1986 would be if they had shown up. Um, she is great. And her character does not like if Eddie Murphy had been in it, it would have overwhelmed everything oh, yeah. else, but her character kind of just fits in to the rest of the ensemble quite well. And that's like the magic of the film, right? Is that we have characters that we know going in, either we're introduced to them in the like, Oh, it's a science fiction thing. And we're introduced to them in the first 30 minutes or so as somebody who's not seen the rest of the series or, where people have watched the original series and watched the first few films and we're going in and we know what a Star Trek film is supposed to be. And we know the yeah. tenor, right? Like the, the kind of the flavor of the past few ones. Mm. And in the middle, or not the middle of this film, but like by the second act of this film, maybe third, depending on how you want to divide things up, if it's a five-act structure, by the second act of this film, all of a sudden, you're in a Star Trek you've never really been in before. Whenever those clouds show up and everybody's head, everybody's profile shows up in those clouds, <laughs> you're like, my goodness, what am I seeing? This is great. And the fish out of water, to use that pun that we keep using, right? Uh, even though whales aren't fish, um, is uh, is putting weirdness in our own world. And we would react to that weirdness in the same way that everybody else is, right? Like yeah. the people on the street not wanting to stop to tell Chukov where the nuclear vessels are. Um, uh-huh. but, uh, what, what's fun about that scene is that was all improvised and Nimoy told, didn't tell the actor, uh, didn't tell, uh, the actor who plays, um, Chekhov this, but he told all the extras, don't pay attention to him, ignore him. Uh-huh. So he had to be even more desperate in his acting and that one extra didn't get the instructions. And so that's why she stops and starts improvising with them. It was a complete right, accident. Right, right. Oh, wow. And she, she was somebody who's car had been towed because they had blocked off the street for shooting and <laughs> and she complained and Nimue was going to let her be an extra and then she actually got lines of dialogue to help pay off her towed car um 
Wow. Yeah. It's and, that crazy. Actress, and that actress was Meryl, Meryl Streep. And that's how she got her start. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, yeah. The, I, I So I, to go back to all the Star Trek I watched this week, but to all the Star Treks I've watched in my life, I'm not presently like a huge fan, but I saw all 10 of the movies in theaters, probably on opening weekend. I saw the first movie in a drive-in. Um, when I was really little and, um, I remember falling asleep. Um, and then all the other ones, I just, I was just a fan of the next generation when it came out. Um, and I remember this one being in particular because it seemed like everybody liked this one and, and, um, it seemed to permeate the, the greater pop culture zeitgeist in a way that Wrath of Khan didn't at the time. I think Wrath of Khan has aged better than this one. Um, but this movie had such a genial feeling towards the entire cast and of Star Trek to pop culture at large that um, it, it was it was kind of cool. And then a year later, The Next Generation came out. Uh, it was a great time to be a fan. And then uh, um, The Final Frontier came out and <laughs> wet farted it all. <laughs> yeah. But then Undisco- then Undisco's Country, which is awesome and really, well, ends the original films uh, really well. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. I watched it the other day, and it it yeah. still holds up. Even the silly CGI purple. Blood yeah, I don't mind that. <laughs> but Christopher um, Plummer is awesome. I do love his Klingon. He is all that Shakespeare stuff that yeah. um, Myers really likes sticking in there. Yeah, and um, it seems like it did something that um, was f- uh, great at the time, similar to this film, in that it was topical, right? Like, so it's so much of original series, mm-hmm. Star Trek, the best episodes are things that are going on, um, uh-huh. addressing the Cold War, addressing uh, uh, civil rights in the States. Um, and yeah, just having the, experiencing the end of the Cold War uh, mm-hmm. at the same time watching a film, it's basically the same thing as a metaphor for it, really helps, I think, that sixth movie out. Um, mm-hmm. And this movie, I, I, I just kept going back in my head where like uh, after we watched it on uh, this week, uh, the wife asked, um, did you, uh, well, there were a lot of ecological films in the 80s, or it seems like there were. I'm mm-hmm. not so sure, like the message was a little bit more transparent or in front uh, of you for a lot of it. But this movie could have very easily been a star, uh, Superman, uh, what, four? Uh-huh. Quest is that the peace. one? Is that the yeah. one where he throws all the nuclear weapons yeah, into yeah. the sun? Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and somehow I think it escapes it, and the message isn't. Um, it's it's weird that they had to bring. It's it's absurd in your head that they're bringing wells to the future, but at the same time, it it feels right. Mm-hmm. More so than like yeah. two little mice, filled mice of some sort, right? Or mm. it, uh, endangered. Uh, tortoises or something like it makes a lot of sense that they're trying to save these whales yeah and you know roddenberry obviously from the original series um also wanted what always aired on the side of optimism and humanity's best nature and of all the the bennett films two three four and i'm gonna include six um this one feels most closely aligned to that where it's almost a gentle a gentle science fiction story um, that focuses a lot on the humanity of the characters and has a lot of hope at the end. Um, Yeah. It's a feel good movie really. 
it doesn't have the highs of the villains of uh, number two, number three, and number yeah. six. Um, well, it's just uh, it's remarkable. It's almost like a kids movie. Yeah, it's a little bit like a Doctor Who in that. Um, like there's an inversion there. Like there, there's no, there's actually not a baddie, right? Like the spot, yeah. like when Nimoy said, I want to do a film that's a Nimoy film, there is not going to be any black hat uh, heavy in it. There's not going to mm-hmm. be a villain. The villain's misunderstanding or miscommunication. And I feel like in this film, they, they had a lot of, a lot of, a lot of opportunity to like play with a lot of their scenes, you know, saying there was a lot of improvisation that, you know, there was a lot of room in the story here to do what they kind of wanted in terms of the, the comedy stuff because a lot of the plot stuff is like in the middle uh, you know right at the start and at the end uh with these bookends that we've talking about and there's not too much plot going on when they're in 86 just that the that they just have to find the whales and find out when they're going and the only real trouble they have is that the the whales are going earlier than expected that's the only real suspense you have and you got Chekhov being injured as well but other than that there's a lot of wiggle room to to have some fun mm-hmm. here yeah like the guy who runs the plastic place in his uh i quit smoking giant button that he wears yes yeah. it's funny it's kind of a sight gag they don't they don't focus on it but it, mm. it just kind of creates a character where there really isn't much of a character um it's great yeah and they don't really care about like messing with the timeline either <laughs> they're like yeah what if he you know what if he didn't invent the thing? Like, well, you don't know that. He could have, you know. I mean, Chekhov basically leaves all his shit behind from the future. <laughs> yeah. By throwing throwing phasers that don't work at him. They have this communicator. Uh, they don't care about that. No. Just leave it. <laughs> well, isn't that what this newest report from somebody who worked who's coming out about what's happening? Oh, oh no, you we, know, you might be right. We might be getting shut down, actually. If I Maybe we cut that out, Jack. <laughs> we don't yeah. just just beep over uh, that whole part right there i don't want to i don't want anybody coming after me yeah so i think overall like good direction good script okay acting yeah i, I think, think the acting is of a piece mm. i think you're right you're right eddie murphy would have thrown everything out of whack um having like uh, a christopher Plummer in there at somewhere also would have but these are all tv actors and they they all they're all great they're all great personalities and they all get their bits of business other than sulu yeah aurora doesn't really she gets a little bit of the short end Hmm. um yeah maybe a little bit but every every, no nobody nothing's out of whack no um so and nimoy does a great job i think that is more of a testament to the directing than the acting yeah where he knows what he has and how to get the best out of it He's not asking anybody to do a soliloquy. That's for darn sure. No Shakespeare quotes. <laughs> well, in the immortal words of Zephram Cochran, I need to take a leak. Uh, <laughs> do you have anything more we want to say on this before we take a short break? <laughs> I think it's still great. I, I would still say that it's probably, if you if you are in tune to the you know, even numbered tracks are good, odd numbered ones are bad. I think it is probably the weakest of the even numbers, but yeah, I think but that's still saying it's pretty great though. Yeah, when I, I originally think- saw it and from like because I've I, we used to have all the VHSs, uh the original series. Yeah. Um 
it was always my least favorite. I, I, I liked one a lot more than it, and even five, um, just because it's tonally wow. different. But as yeah. as an adult and watching it again, like twenty years later, yeah, it's phenomenal. It's 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 an artifact. Of, it's a mu- movie that can't be replicated. I think uh, totally right. Like, and so I think mm. I, I like it as like this thing that's. Uh, this crystal that that can't be uh, broken into uh, or like it's uh, yeah, there's not, I don't know how you would try and make this movie again or make a movie like this movie. It seems like the eighties factor though. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's also the fact that these types of movies uh, now cost so much to make and it really has become the focus of the studio system that, Relatively small budget for this, even of its time. Uh, now it would be like the J. J. Abrams movies where they cost $200, $300 million to make. Um, and yeah. the development process would, is, is completely different because you're not allowed to make it a, a Nimoy movie. Like this is going to be a Nimoy movie and it is and it's great. Um, there are so many other factors and so many other people involved that, it, you know, I'm yeah. glad they went back to TV because that's really the only place that they could do good work with these star treks anymore well yeah. at least as shown by the next generation movies with yeah maybe one exception which we'll talk about in a moment <laughs> right i hope yeah not nemesis <laughs> generations <laughs> oh my god insurrection double right. dumbass on you um i'm gonna <laughs> All right, don't go anywhere. I have to go somewhere. But you can go somewhere, Thomas, but just come back. I will come back and keep my headphones on. Okay. Um, Engage. (laughs) One damn minute, Admiral. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, Spock's continual use of um, colorful language. I was wondering on the BBC Three when you watched this or whatever it was, uh, did they uh, dub in other swears? to lessen or to increase (laughs) they're using the c word a lot (laughs) oh boy so are y'all ready to uh get into some queen borg asmr twilighting Ooh, (laughs) are you asking me am i ready to voyage to the year 2063 40 years hence where the hottest song on the jukebox is ooby doobie by Roy Orbison? <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Yep. With Father Hog or Father Hoggett, Farmer Hoggett. <laughs> that was a different that was a different babe movie. <laughs> <laughs> that was that the one that ended uh what that'll do, Borg. That'll do wah do wah 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 wah. <laughs> uh, okay. Oh boy. Uh, so speaking of Gene Roddenberry's uh, unused treatment for Star Trek II, where because they were in warp, they weren't affected by the Klingons having gone back in time and saved JFK. Um, and also, we didn't have to watch Spock's mom get raped by Klingons from that as well. Um, but they reused the idea of because the Enterprise is some kind of space anomaly that it is untouched by something in the past eradicating everything in the future. Um, But they recycled that idea for this movie. And I find that kind of charming for some reason. 
I'm not sure I understand the time travel um, consequences that you're talking about because they go when they go back in time. The Bo- or there's a moment where they get a glimpse and the Borg have taken over Earth. Yeah, yeah. So in that, well, going back to Roddenberry's number two, number two. <laughs> yes, number one. Roddenberry's number, number two. <laughs> Roddenberry's number two. Um, yeah, they go back and then they they see a bit of Earth as it is now, and it is run by. Uh, Klingons and a, a race of people that are like subhuman. Um, and, you know, Spock's dad is killed. His mom is raped. All kinds of shit happens. And then they, ha- then they have to go back in time to 1963. And then they crash. And then JFK, by seeing the crash or being around it, uh, is somehow doesn't go to Dallas. And then they have to. Anyway, okay. this movie has nothing to do with that. Sounds pretty uh, dark. But it, is, <laughs> it does sound very dark. And Paramount justifiably yeah we're aghast at some of the plus you know jfk has to die um unlike the the city at the edge of forever where it's a it's a lady who somehow by dying you know x y and z um anyway we're we're talking about the next generation now not the original crew yeah we're the, the year 1996 for first contact and we've not covered any movies um from the year 1996 yeah it's it's between um mortal Kombat and event horizon for pws anderson it's the year uh it's the year of island of dr moreau but we didn't cover that uh it's a year before no. gubbo it's between the rock and i mean it's uh the year before the rock it's the there was no eastwoods there's no spielbergs this is uh this is a new one for us, nineteen ninety six. Is yeah. that the year uh Eastwood was uh having a new baby and had just gotten remarried? Yeah, he just divorced, I think, in ninety six or uh was going through okay. the divorce. Yeah. Yeah. And then he was courting that uh reporter lady who would become his wife for a while. <laughs> <laughs> so Martin, you had watched all the original at least twice. Have you yeah. Did you dip into the next generation? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, when I came back from school as a kid, you know, it was on TV a lot with, along with uh, Voyager and Deep Space Nine. Uh, they kind of showed one episode, one after the other, on Channel Four, I think, over here um, on repeat and stuff. But yeah, I'd seen all the movies. Um, quite a few times and i think this is probably my favorite one out of all of them uh you know a lot of people go with like the wrath of khan as their favorite i do love that film but i think for me i still prefer the the first contact because it just has a great like horror feeling to it i'm a big horror fan so i do appreciate that and the borg Kind of similar to the Cybermen, I'm, you know. I do like my mm-hmm. Doctor Who as well, and also, you know, me and my dad, we watched the original series on VHS. Like every, we we usually like watched a movie that either he had not seen or I had not seen. You know, then after the movie, we would watch a Star Trek original series episode on VHS. Uh, went through the whole whole three seasons, uh, loved it, and then of course, there's a Space Seed episode where mm-hmm. you have Khan in it and and it, obviously the the original series does not have uh Chekhov in it so 
there's a scene in Wrath of Khan where Khan goes, Ah, Chekhov, I never forget his face. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, excuse me, Khan, you've never seen him before. <laughs> so that always kind of annoys me about that film. But it, Oh, that's weird. In the, States, in the States, Chekhov is an admiral and he runs the Enterprise. They must have edited that out in the version you saw for reasons right. of the Cold War. All <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, he definitely well, no, said they, that. <laughs> they they excused it later by saying, "Well, just because Chekhov wasn't on the bridge doesn't mean he wasn't on the crew." And maybe off camera he met yeah. Khan, which, eh, you know, I, I'm not going to sweat it too much. I I'm glad that you had seen this. I I thought because uh, we we appreciate you coming on uh, the episode. I thought maybe some of the lines in here would have been triggering um, for somebody <laughs> from the from Britain, including <laughs> they assimilate entire worlds and we fall back. <laughs> Not again! The line must be drawn here! This far! <laughs> no further! And I'll make them pay for what they've done. Um, That's not a very good Picard, but that is a line um, that could yeah. be uh, <laughs> the British Empire is Borg. Yeah, well, I'm a big <laughs> Hamilton fan as well, so I don't really care about Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, the King George is so good in it. Um, yep. <laughs> what about you, Thomas? What's your... Uh, so, of all the uh, Star Trek uh, movies that have come out, um, I only own one, and it is First really? Contact, and it's the Special okay. Collector's Edition. Uh, my, my, like I said, my, my dad has the VHS for the original ones and some of the others, but it's the only one, and I have it, and... I have Star Trek fan collective Borg because like Martin was saying, I'm a big horror fan. And for me, the Borg are like uh super intelligent super zombies. Scary. So scary. <laughs> yeah. They, they move like zombies. They don't care about humans. Like typically like they, they're strategic. It's a little bit of like it's visible, but it's a little bit like the 1977, 79, um, San Francisco based, uh, we just mentioned a moment ago with Invasion with, of the Body, Invasion Snatchers. Of Body Snatchers, right? Yeah, where they don't go and try and take over everybody all at once by brute force. They're they've already won in their heads, so it's just a matter yeah. of taking out the most important people at the most important times. Mm -hmm. mm. I think some of the scariest scenes in this is when you know uh, when they go through deck sixteen for the first time and the Borg are there and they don't see them as a threat and you know. It, it just feels like any wrong move, they could attack them. Any sharp head turn, and they could be on them right straight away. But they mm -hmm. just don't see see them as a threat at the time. And it's just that it's just very uneasy. Just the way they move as well. Not in just just in terms of what they look like. Of course, they look disgusting um, with all the gray. Hey, skin one of us might have a fetish for that. <laughs> I don't want to know. No. Um, but yeah, just no. that they just walk everywhere. They don't run. They're not particularly aggressive uh, until they're like right up close. You know, very scary. <laughs> and it yeah. doesn't help that there's a bunch of Dutch angles and anamorphic lens being used yeah. to mm -hmm. make them uh, seem any less terrifying. Can Can I go back in time a little bit? Sure. So I'm gonna, are you gonna do a slingshot, or are you gonna have some anti-time particles that you're gonna follow in the jet stream of? Well, I'm going to use one to go back in time and use the other to come come back. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, anyway, my dad was a huge fan of the original series. Um, 
and we would watch it with him all the time. And his favorite joke, because he had seen them all more than once, was he'd sit down and it would start. Um, because back then in the 70s, it was just on syndication. So we didn't have tapes or anything. And his joke was, oh, this is the one I haven't seen before. And then we would all laugh as kids because we knew he'd already seen them. Um, and one of the things I, I recognized watching all of this this week was how brilliant Roddenberry had been in um, casting a character like Jean-Luc Picard with somebody like Patrick Stewart, because my dad, back when he was in his 20s watching the original Star Trek, he kind of saw himself as, as Captain Kirk, the young adventurer, always going on the away missions. Um, and then the next generation really offers a captain who has become the parent. Uh, and Picard really has a great paternal nature about him and Patrick Stewart, the actor, and how my dad effortlessly went from seeing himself as Kirk to recognizing himself in Picard, both heroic characters, completely different. Um, and we would watch Star Trek The Next Generation every week. I think it was on Saturdays. It was one of the most popular, if not the most popular, syndication original series of all time. Um, and for you kids out there, syndication is like, like you know, CBS still has commercial TV and it's a network. Syndication was where they would sell the series to TV networks or TV channels in all the various locales around the world. And then they could air it weekly whenever they wanted on their schedule. Um, it was quite lucrative for a time for TV productions. Um, it doesn't really exist anymore. Um, but we would watch it every week. My, my twin brother, my dad and I, every Saturday we would make the popcorn and we'd have drinks and pizza. It was like a big deal. Um, so I have a lot of fond memories of watching The Next Generation and particularly part one of The Best of Both Worlds, which introduced not introduce the Borg, but uh, was the second appearance after the Q Hugh episode where they were introduced. Uh, and I remember the 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 cliffhanger at the end of this episode where Picard is assimilated and has since gone on to be one of the most consequential episodes maybe in all of Star Trek because the plot lines that are, came from it. Um, I remember losing my freaking mind when that cliffhanger came about and knowing it was going to be three fucking months before <laughs> they would resolve it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Total, total peak Star Trek for me, that whole era. Well, I mean, um, like I said, there was the first time they had ever done a cliffhanger end of series episode in Star Trek ever was that best of both worlds. And it ends with Riker I mean, spoiler, oh but the first, the first episode of the two-parter ends with Riker about to blow up the Borg ship with uh, Lucretius uh, Picard as a Borg on it. And mm -hmm, everything yeah. in the episode leads up to him making that decision. He it's says all, fire. Yeah. To be continued. Fuck you guys. I was so pissed. <laughs> I was so mad. Because like you said, they hadn't yeah. done one before. I didn't know it was a cliffhanger because there was no internet. It wasn't like saying it was a cliffhanger. Yeah. It totally took me by surprise. Uh, all three of us were like up in arms. Maybe well, not my dad. That was my, my experience brother. of watching the newest Into the Spideyverse. I'm sorry, the newest uh, Mission Impossible. I'm sorry, the... <laughs> Fast and Furious. Yeah, Fast and Furious 10. Um the other part of that was that the writer didn't know what they were going to do after that. They didn't. Right. <laughs> so they had to go. <laughs> they spent the whole off season trying to figure it out. And the 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 part two, the season premiere, is completely brilliant. How 
how they resolve everything because it's almost unresolvable, you think, at the end of the episode. That's what makes such a great cliffhanger because they didn't know either. Um, yeah, one of, one of the two best episodes. And what's always of, surprising to me is that, I mean, that's when the trek really got going for a lot of people. Picard became human in many ways because he had he would start to have this thing starting uh-huh. from there on out. It was a bit of his flaw. And then the Borg never come back in the original series until this movie that we're talking about today. Well, mm-hmm. they there are episodes with the Borg, particularly I Borg with Hugh, which I watched last night before First Contact, and is still a phenomenal, quiet, humanistic, classic episode of Star Trek. It's beautiful. Sure, um, and you have descent, but it, you don't have the ship coming and no. Earth in peril and the Lucretia stuff fully going on. And it, it's it's amazing how this was what the third and the start of the fourth season. They went on another three seasons, and they really didn't try to replicate Best of Both Worlds. And they it's almost like they saved it for this movie, even though that's not technically true. Yeah, so this movie originally, I, I don't know. Okay, get, I'm so glad that I don't think Marta knows this. So according to Star Trek FAQ 2.0 by Mark Clark, one of the other books I have sitting around here, uh, Bergman, uh, Berman, who's the producer for this, uh, suggested that the upcoming film should be a time travel story. The most successful Trek movie, The Voyage Home, had involved time travel as had many cherished TV episodes. But the writers, Moore and Braggy, were keen to do a story involving the Borg. So what they decided on was to have a movie called Star Trek Renaissance (laughs) (laughs) that had the crew of the Enterprise track the Borg back to the hive in a castle dungeon in Renaissance Europe. (laughs) And there would be sword fights alongside phasers and Data would become Leonardo da Vinci's apprentice. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Oh, it's so good. I almost wish it was I almost wish they made that. It's so funny. Yeah. I I can't imagine what yeah. that would like it, yeah. it would be probably as bad as Star Trek Generations, which they offered to Nimoy to direct. And he passed it passed on it because he said it didn't have a good ending. Good on him. He is right. Yeah. yeah. So Frakes comes in and they start to rework it. And Picard said that he didn't want to be, uh, I'm sorry, not Picard. I, I, I get him confused. Uh, Professor Axit, I'm sorry. I get him confused. <laughs> Gandalf's best friend. Yes. Uh, said Patrick Stewart said that he uh, didn't want to be in tights. And he didn't want to, <laughs> like, he, seriously. And so they, they, totally made, fair. they did a rewrite of it. Um, and that would have Picard and Beverly Crusher, the uh, doctor, medical doctor, down with Cochran helping him, and it would have mm-hmm. Riker fighting on board. And Patrick Stewart mm-hmm. then again said, "I think that that's wrong. Doesn't my character yeah. hate the Borg? <laughs> that makes sense." <laughs> and they're like, "Oh yeah, how about that?" And so Star Trek Renaissance, uh, sorry, Renaissance became. Uh, it was going to be another. I'm trying to remember what the other title was going to be, but uh, around the same time, you had the new, you had the third Alien. Movie Generations Two oh, right. was a possible title at one point. Oh, it was, oh. yeah. Uh, so eventually, they ended up with First Contact, which I think is a great title. Did they try mm-hmm. and get Patrick Stewart to have hair again in the Re- Renaissance version? So obviously, they tried to do that in the. <laughs> I, I remember they tried to make him have a wig. 
for the pilot, is that right? Or the screen test for the TV? Show? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it looked terrible. Not a good idea. Yeah. In in retrospect, they made the right choice. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Frakes, um, he had directed eight episodes of the original series. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, not the original series. I keep saying that. The Next Generation. He, he directed the eight episodes of The Next Generation. Um, and this is his first full... Uh, length movie they had wanted like ridley scott or john uh mctern uh, to do it but um yeah he ended up with the gig and i think very similarly to nimoy uh directing his two films he lucked into having a cast that was pretty in sync with each other uh-huh um he did make some choices uh that this is the first i think only star trek film until the new ones uh that have a soundtrack that incorporated licensed songs. The punk song in um, uh, Voyage Home was actually written by that guy who plays the punk, who was literally oh, really? his assistant. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. Funny. Uh, so this, yeah, you get Roy Orbison's Ubi Dooby and Steppenwolf's Magic Carpet <laughs> Ride <laughs> because Zephyrin Cochran who played by James Cromwell and yeah, uh, the character <laughs> Dr. Cochran loves his rock and roll and his booze. Uh-huh. Originally Picard was going to take Cochran's place because of the Borg arriving. Cochran was like out of commission in a coma. So Picard was going to take his place to get the the test of the warp engine in the original plot that they uh-huh. wisely right. did away with. Um, which gives us, you know, Farmer Farmer Hoggett and um, Alfrey Woodard, who are apparently a couple, even though they barely share scenes with each other, who are both fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, he Cromwell kind of looks like Jughead um, as a SoundCloud rapper because he's wearing that big fur coat and he has that that weird Jughead hat. Uh huh. Um, it works. It's uh, it's uh, 2063. I don't know what the fuck they wear back yeah. then. Post World War Three as well. So. Yeah, true. Who knows exactly. what that looks like? And Montana, which yeah. not being from the states, you don't really know how bad that is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just where they have all the uh, the missile silos. That's why they said it in Montana, uh, even though it clearly wasn't uh, filmed in Montana. They used the missile silo, I think, in Arizona from a Titan missile. But uh, yeah, anyone want to try and do this in a minute? I don't have well song for this. Um, um, Martin, do you want to try and give a synopsis uh, in 60 seconds? Sure. Um. <laughs> <laughs> right. Whenever you're ready, we, yeah. we will start timing the, you. The Borg travel back in time intent on preventing Earth's first contact with alien species. Captain Picard and his crew pursue them to ensure that Zephram Cochran makes his maiden flight, reaching warp speed. And the Vulcans come down and they share a whiskey. Yeah, and that's that's under a minute. <laughs> that's like under that's under thirty seconds. It is. Yeah. Well done. Yeah, I've learned on my podcast, IMDb is your friend. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, one thing I like about this film uh, um, is that when it takes place in space, I'm going to say two things. I mean, like uh, this, uh, I love the pacing of this film. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. 
But whenever they're, they're, you have Worf in his uh, attack plane, and then they, the Enterprise decides to violate a, an order, they all vote on it, and they go in. Uh, that Enterprise is so much larger than all the other <laughs> yeah. ships. It's, it's amazing. It is. It's the, uh, all the other ships are like shuttle ships. I thought I was like, oh, well, them, the, all the other big ships must be like in the background somewhere, and they're like attacking with their shuttles or something. No, they're actual starships, apparently. <laughs> and so you have like this, yeah, you have the yeah. giant Enterprise. Now, unfortunately, none of those people really show up. <laughs> like, it's a big ship with nobody in it, which makes sense yeah. for <laughs> the the bird of prey uh in the last movie because they're all like stranded it was the main crew that was stranded and they still a ship okay and they have like multiple things rigged up so that they can fly it i think it's established like in an episode th- or i'm sorry the third movie and this is just like nah, we have enough people maybe that make some board like a dozen borg <laughs> and the main crew i mean this film really starts off in a really gnarly way i mean like the dream sequence with Picard and the, you know, is about to be annihilated by the Borg. Yeah, and you see Picard's uh, eye lens like bend from the drill. Uh, it's like, whoa, that is intense to start your movie. It opens with a double dream. Actually, yeah, it does. Yeah, classic. Yeah, you classic. Have, yeah, you have a cool. double dream, but I thought that the second one kind of doesn't really compare to that that eye bend from the drill. Yes, you have something coming out of his face, but I feel like. That opening one really outdoes that. But so, I think I think what this film does, um, and, and it might be unique, and one of the reasons that I, you know, if I need to show somebody a Star Trek movie, they're like, okay, I'm going to finally watch a Star Trek. I'm going to show them this, or I'm going to show them a Voyage Home, right? Because yeah. this film is a horror film that is mm-hmm. that also has all the fun of uh, the Zephyrin Cochran uh, uh, character. But th- what other film can you think of in the Star Trek fr- Enterprise uh, franchise that opens with a dream that's a nightmare yeah. that's also a fake-out dream? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and it's, also, it's also a quick visual exposition for a plot of a TV show that came out, what, six years earlier, five years earlier? Uh, it does a lot in, in very little time compared to the movie we just talked about. Oh, so I marked it. In 14 minutes, they are back in time on Earth. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's great. I mean, the pacing is amazing. Um, and you, you know, the back and forth between, you know, the Earthbound characters and the guys on the ship uh, is really well done. I would say maybe in terms of like suspense and plot wise, there's a, there's a lot more going on on the ship, on the Enterprise compared to what's what they what you know Riker and and LaForge have to to deal with with Cochran like the only real thing is that you know he tries to run off cuz he wanted to pee <laughs> um, <laughs> whereas they you know the enterprise crew have got a lot to deal with with, with the borg um so it's kind of a not you can't really compare the two in terms of danger level but, but obviously what you could argue that the you know Riker and LaForge having a more of a of an important job uh that they have to get this ship ready to to launch in time um mm-hmm. save their own future because i mean if if the rest of the enterprise is destroyed if but if you know they get the ship off off, off in time it's fine kind of but it would suck <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah i i would say 
in terms of stakes, a tad unbalanced, but like pacing wise, um, it's really great. And it gives you a good thing to cut too, right? Because you end up with three storylines going on. Uh, and don't forget that Deanna Troy had to go get drunk. Yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, so that was great that she learned what, what the good stuff was, the good whiskey. Um, uh, and it seems like at one point they, they're taking like the, dis- the still, the distillery down to be able to use it for something else in the warp engine. Uh, yeah, yeah. That coil, I think, is. But yeah. so you have, yeah, you have that like the B plot there, but your A plot's actually like A1 and A2 because you have Beverly mm-hmm. Crusher who comes back with uh, Lily, who's great. Um, oh, yeah. Eventually she would be uh, in um, that actress, uh, you just said her name, uh, Ken. Alfred Wood- uh, Woodard. Alfred yeah, she, uh, in the Cage, uh, Luke Cage series. She's a great villain. Oh, yeah. And um, her 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 talk down to Picard that kind of gets us to the third act is is astonishing. Yeah, she is yeah, so right. good in that scene. And I I turned to uh, this is the the other Star Trek that my my wife watched with me and she thoroughly enjoyed it. But um, her talk down and Patrick Stewart's reaction, I, I turned to her and said, "I'm really glad they never wrote a scene like that for Shatner." Because uh, uh-huh. I was just trying to picture yeah. how he would play a scene like that. With he would such smirk anger. or something, right? Or and he did. He does a good job, like in number six, about his anger with the Klingons. But it, it nowhere near the level mm. of of hatred Picard shows here of no. the Borg. You can really but feel you see- the, the rage bubbling from mm-hmm. Patrick Stewart. And you see Lily making perfect fucking sense, right? She's like, why yeah. are you doing this? This makes no sense. Like, everybody here won't tell you. She's reading the room. And she's like, you are acting like a madman. He's like, I'm a madman. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, it's, it's, uh, a real, it's a real pivotal scene in the film, you know, where P- Picard is in full revenge mode, not giving up, trying to fight the Borg, whereas everyone else thinks they should blow up the ship, but they just follow orders as Picard expects them to. You know, they all recognize that Picard is is losing it at this point, but Lily doesn't have to obey orders, so she confronts him and demands to blow up the ship, quoting Moby Dick, which obviously changes Picard's mind, knowing the fact that he's read the book. So. <laughs> and I love that she hasn't. Yeah, <laughs> she just yeah. knows the character, and he's, like, quoting from it verbatim. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's cathartic for the movie, but, um, I mean, having watched all the episodes before this, um, it's even doubly cathartic having watched him from, you know, becoming a sim. actually first mm. with Q seeing it, then assimilated. And then um, he and Guinan's uh, hatred towards the Borg in the, the I Borg episode to allowing that they're going to introduce individuality to the Borg or whatever. Um, and then to get to this point, um, it does feel very, very cathartic. Even so though I feel like I have Go two ahead. fans on on this so i'm not so i'm not gonna like bring up niddling things on um like why would the crew not freak out that they can't report back to the enterprise for so long it's like what over 12 hours that the crew down below was just like oh maybe they're just and then when they do get the space like oh it looks like they're just giving us a send-off or something (laughs) uh Uh, but how did you feel are you plus or minus are you uh for or against a queen hive uh person behind the Borg because when I saw this in theaters I was upset I was like there, there shouldn't be right. an individual in charge of the Borg that's the anti-Borg um, I think 
as a fan, I think uh, it is both damaging for them as a long-term villain, uh, but in the short term of this particular film, um, it's great. Yeah, I, well, I, has, I quite liked it. I think when you look at other things like this in terms of a collective, I don't know, you know, in terms of in nature, you know, ants and bees, they always, there's always a leader, always a queen controlling mm-hmm. everything. Um, but I, I mean, I was a little confused about, um, you know, d- does the Borg originate, originate organically or is it, does it originate, you know, synthetically? That was where my confusion kind of lied with the Borg queen. Cause I think the other theme that's going on in this film is with like the Borg queen and the data storyline where data wants to be more human and, and the Borg queen, like, seeks perfection in in all life forms you know so they so they kind of have opposite goals here those two characters like an android synthetic wanting to be more organic versus an organic wanting to be more uh, synthetic you know it's an Mm -hmm. interesting storyline but i don't think it gets enough screen time to be more thought-provoking but i think it's only there to like you know hide data's loyalties at the end uh, in terms of that, but um, I didn't mind the fact that you have, uh, you know, a queen Borg. Yeah, uh, I guess I guess it jumps meaning, out at me. Yeah, the the more the the stronger meaning of it doesn't really come through. The 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 all the Picard stuff, his revenge against the Borg is is the stronger element here. It, it does help that that she is so great. Yeah, yeah. in the role. And I like that the original plan is what they do at the end. They just have a bunch of complications between it, which is flood the area with something that kills organic material. Yeah. That she can't just use that little crane thing and pull her organic material off of that body. How, like Just do the reverse of her entrance is befuddling to me. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, that's something that's always, I, I guess, I'm of two minds for it. I understand why they have an actress mm-hmm. in that role, but it seems like a computer or something that's not human would make a lot more sense for the mm. brain or the, the the main driver villain of the of the borg which she was something that was um added kind of late in the process compared to all the other stuff um didn't a paramount executive say that they needed a villain oh and not just the borg collective interesting and or, or um, fascinating Fascinating. <laughs> Fascinating, Captain. Um, so, yeah, that was something that they, they originally didn't have, which makes sense because the Borg are a collective. They don't have. Yeah, yeah, that's why I was getting confused by what's the actual origins of the Borg, because if the Borg Queen is originally synthetic and has organic material, I don't know, organic material around her, then why is she trying to you know um overtake other organic beings so that wouldn't make a lot of sense but but if if she was originally organic then it does make uh sense but yeah and then yeah it seems like it's there so that they can do the gas and then take the gas away and then Picard could snap her mechanical spine <laughs> Yeah, because in the original show, it seems like the Borg are—it's just synthetic, right? It's just a a. Com- uh huh. Yeah, 
Now it'd be cool if they had the inverse of it, and that and they flew around in a giant um, square or other geometric shape made of skin. <laughs> oh God! Yeah. Oh yeah! Like a giant scrotum <laughs> in space. Uh, um, you should pitch that, Thomas. Is there an episode of uh, Strange New Worlds? <laughs> I, 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 we've engaged I, the scrotum. <laughs> oh god! I tried, but they gave me the shaft. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, so Frakes in his first movie is uh, ably helped by uh, Matthew Leonetti, a, a long, long-term cinematographer who worked uh, in anamorphic with a ton of directors and was the DP in two films we've already talked about on this podcast. Thomas, do you know which two they are? I don't, but I'm guessing they're not going to be Bronco Billy or She Devil. <laughs> no, it's uh, a year before this movie, uh, Strange Days, directed by Kathleen. Oh, Bigley, okay. And then uh, Poltergeist, directed oh. by someone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, but uh, a really. Uh, it, for a first-time film director, I, I always like it when they get somebody who has been around forever mm. to be the cinematographer. It really helps here, especially going from TV, that work schedule, and then that, that square frame to shooting anamorphic. Um, Frakes did a lot of, um, well, a lot of homework basically means he watched a lot of movies shot in anamorphic. Yeah. Um, mm. But still, it, it's a big adjustment. Um, anyway, uh did a great job here and would go on to <coughs> shoot Frakes' next film, Insurrection, to lesser results, but that's life. Great looking movie. Um, at, at times, obviously, the, the budget wasn't as big as you might want it to be. Yeah, the going from the TV show to the, the movie and um, the models aided by computers of the Borg ship and particularly the makeup on the Borg themselves. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, huge, huge plus up. It's amazing um, what 10 years will do uh-huh. going from 86 to 96. Yeah. Yeah. They, they look great. They're, they're terrifying here. It's weird. Yeah. It's weird watching this after the, the TV shows, which or the makeup and stuff is pretty kludgy, um, but still terrifying. And then go to this. They look like zombies. I mean, the, the wires in their skin. Oh, yeah. uh, it's pretty gross. They're very much uh, the zombies for the sci-fi world. I would say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I love the holodeck se- scene set in like, this like '30s gangster time. I think it really just brings a like a, a tonal shake up, if you will. Um, you know, it has a, a sense of fun, uh, which I think the film very much needed uh, in a very intense and at times scary movie. Uh, you know, and it starts the whole beginning of Picard and Lily's conflict when Picard is wants to make sure one of the Borg Borg he's killed is properly dead. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that, that was a holdover from some of the earlier versions, like the Renaissance, where they really wanted right. to see the Borg in a, a period-specific setting. Yeah. Um, so that, that a lot of the holodeck scene came from wanting to see that, which is great seeing the Borg come into this 1930s mm. uh, nightclub. Um yeah, because going in there, you're like, how is he? What's his plan here? Is he just trying to lure them in here to mm-hmm. lose them? Because you don't necessarily realize that you know guns are going to kill them. Whereas a holodeck just shouldn't really work that way. But 
there's a little <laughs> cheeky line, I guess, where he says, oh, I turned the safety parameters off. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah, but <laughs> when Patrick Stewart is shooting them, yeah. man, that is some uh, that is some good acting yeah. on his part. <laughs> he is, he is uh, dealing with a lot of rage yeah. in that scene. Mm. Yeah, it seems like, I don't know, if you read Max Brooks or other people writing on zombies, the best thing they have mm. is just a, a really sharp sword. Because it seems like they can adapt any, their shield just works against like energy stuff. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so if you just blunt, if you're just wharf and you're blunt trauma, injuring them yeah. to the head, you're fine. <laughs> uh, so if you just had like a samurai sword and ran around and, and or a lightsaber to cross universes. Yeah, I mean, they should have uh, devised a plan to get to Worf's uh, quarters where he has, surely he has all his weaponry in there. You know. Oh, he's, he's yeah. from a different ship, though. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, oh, okay. you know, originally they were going to do a, a whole setup to what where the crew had been since the end of the show, and they decided just to to do away with it. So it's actually a, kind of a surprise. You're wondering where Worf is, yeah. and then he shows up on a ship that's about to... Oh, to go and that's where, you get your new star, that's where you get your new Enterprise as well, because it, that Enterprise is a new model for the movie mm, yeah i love that opening line though from Wolf when they're being attacked by the the borg where he's like perhaps today is a good day to die <laughs> oh that was a pretty <laughs> good for pretty running good speed <laughs> <laughs> ah, that was great it's a better line than cochran's and i don't I mean bless him right he's a he's a great actor but how do you how do you say a line like and you people, you're all astronauts on some kind of Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> Not false at all. Oh my god, it's so cheeky of a line. Yeah. Uh, the fact they did it, and it's good for a laugh. Um, you know, it, <laughs> some of this comedy stuff can really derail an entire movie. And I'm thinking of the Final Frontier. Um, right. It's such a fine line that really focusing on the chemistry between the actors and, uh, you know, giving them something to do. It's not totally complicated, I don't think. And it helps. Yeah, I mean, I think it helps that you have the different time, different storylines, because like I was saying, your your A storyline has the uh, has Lily breaking off and doing her own thing and meeting up with Picard while other people are there. And then you have data then for Kate there. And so you start to have like different things you can cut to. And the editor does a great job of just giving you a few minutes of a, uh, maybe even like less than a minute of a scene occasionally just to keep the chronology moving, but also to break between scenes on the ship, between yeah, inside and, and outside. Because yeah. the scenes on the ship are proper intense at times, proper scary for this uh-huh. type of genre in a Star Trek movie. So, you know, the the, the scenes on, the, on Earth with Cochrane, they really service as a like kind of a palate cleanser if you will just to soften the film up a little bit um to break up the the intensity of of the stuff going on 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 the ship because there's another scene i really like uh the spacesuit scene on the hull of the enterprise is awesome i always really oh like yeah that scene assimilate this <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah like the borg moving slowly you know, on the hull is kind of reinforced even more in a weird way uh, that makes them scarier in a weird way. Uh, you know, and when Hawk uh, gets assimilated and the way Hawk turns his head to reveal he's yeah. a Borg sent a chill down my spine the first time I saw it. I was like, oh, God. 
No, it's great horror, yeah. but it's amazing how quickly he changes, but everybody else takes a while. It's just, yeah, yeah. it's good. It's a good effect. It's good for the movie, but yeah, the the, the rules right. seem to change or bend. Yeah. Well, they have that earlier on in the film. One of the Borg takes, uh, puts those pipes into a guy's neck. Uh-huh. He seems to have changed pretty quick, mm-hmm. I would say. But, um, well, there's one guy on the floor, isn't there? And, and he kind of, he's going gray pretty quick, but uh, yeah, I, I get what you mean, but yeah, a little inconsistent, but maybe, yeah, it just varies <laughs> on who you assimilate. <laughs> well, it's also nice that the Borg don't need to breathe outside, so they don't yeah. have to be in these spacesuits. So whenever, it's a great moment where you cut back to Worf and you think that he's gone, but he's tied up a tube around his leg to keep his pressure in his suit. The tube yeah. is connected to a limb uh-huh. of a, a member of the Borg. Yeah. It's totally badass. <laughs> it's a great reveal. And he hits his hilarious. swords in that, doesn't he? Yeah, or he has some of his weapons, right? Yeah, yeah, That's how yeah. He, so, yeah. Yeah, he's got to have some weapons on that ship already, surely. You know. <laughs> Just stashed away, kind of like I have a yeah. pistol in the, my commodes. Just yeah, in so case. Maybe they, have, they should have devised a plan to go to his quarters. <laughs> they should have. <laughs> Yeah, surely he's got a stash somewhere of, of Klingon weapons. <laughs> or maybe they left his room the same, like when yeah. a kid goes off to college and they leave the room the same with the penance and yeah. whatnot. <laughs> Captain, I ask you that no one go in my quarters. <laughs> uh, unless you're going to fumigate it. The, uh, the, the, the Vulcans at the end, the reveal... Uh, having seen this movie a lot, and my wife, no interest in Star Trek, but watched it, um, she was like, ah, it's those guys. <laughs> it was like, great. It was it, a great reveal. You, you see yeah. it through someone else's eyes, and it, it's kind of fun. Instead of having a hood, though, it'd be great if the actor had a headband tied around his head, kind of like a karate <laughs> uh-huh. kid, and he undid yeah. it. And they're like, oh, I see. You're you're an alien. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I very much got like Close Encounters vibes. I don't know if there, there was a little like reference there they were going for um, as the Vulcans come out of the ship. This was this was quite a time for Star Trek because you had this movie came out, which was was which very popular. Um, at the same time, Deep Space Nine was was a couple seasons from ending its seven season run, and, and Star Trek Voyager, whose Doctor appears. In this oh, film, oh yeah, uh-huh. yeah, um, <laughs> great line from that. Movie. So it, it seemed like Star Trek was going to go on forever. At this mm-hmm. point, you had like a movie series. Now it was a everybody loved First Contact, and then then you know a series would follow Deep Space Nine and Voyager, and we'd have mm-hmm. Star Trek forever. It didn't really work that way. Um, partially thanks to Star Trek Enterprise, but yeah, not uh, not good. <laughs> no, the worst theme song of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think the season of Deep Space Nine after this, they actually used the um, very authoritarian gray sh- um, sweatshirts with the the colored uh, shirts underneath that they introduced in this film, yeah. which is not my favorite Star Trek look. No. Um, a bit militaristic. Um, They're going for the more subtle vibe, I guess, less colorful. Yeah, yeah, which would... Um, Costume-wise, kind of hobble the series for for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Maybe up until Strange New Worlds, all the costumes are just kind of yeah. um, monochromatic and militaristic. 
Um, anyway, that's that's a whole different podcast. <laughs> the costumes of Star Trek. <laughs> um, which which color tunic would you guys be wearing if you were a member of the Star Trek Enterprise? Starship Enterprise, not the Star Trek Enterprise. Thomas? Well, I don't I mean, obviously a red shirt, but uh, <laughs> it'd be nice if I had uh, different jobs. If I had like red on the front and blue on the back or something, <laughs> or more, I, I don't know, any Manchester or like just like different like colors, more than just more than just one color. And then I was like, Oh yeah, I'm a science officer and medical or I'm engineering yeah. and tactical. <laughs> so you want, you want a technicolor dream coat uniform. Yeah. So I want, just... I want like a pride flag. Just basically. <laughs> well, I can do and also, jobs. <laughs> I, I wish that the uh, therapist had a, uh, um, a color, right? What, Diana, Troy, yeah, I, Diana Troy's role yeah. isn't really done in other episodes. I'm sorry, other uh, other iterations. And it'd be great, yeah, if that was a, a rank or a, a path up. Because uh, you could have wizards and, what, clerics and Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you should be uh-huh. able to have, like, multiple things. Isn't she green or something? I thought. Troy? Oh, uh, Diana, Diana Troy? Yeah. Uh she uh blue um sometimes whoa um, she did what to who <laughs> she had a blue uniform oh thank you i'm sorry yeah she and Riker were quite close though yeah um and then a few other uh muted colors i think because she's an right. empath and she can't be too bold in I- her dress I'm really glad, and we'll, we'll get your answer to what color here in just a moment. But I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that they both cut Wesley Crusher from this film. Right, uh-huh. he was my least favorite thing about the uh, the Next Generation, and that they cut the fact that uh, Data and the Borg Queen had a baby. Oh wow! What? No. <laughs> well, he's instructed in over what a thousand different types of pl- giving pleasure, whatever the line uh-huh. is from the movie. Oh, yeah. It was just a call back um, to uh, the last film. Yeah. Uh, Martin, what color are you? Um, You know, are, are we talking just next gen uniforms? Is that right? Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's go. Um, Yeah. I, I like the red, you know, the, the, the cards red, um, the classic look. <laughs> yeah. Um, or Guinan. I would go with Guinan. Cool. Her bartender uniform. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would go with Borg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is interesting they didn't ask Whoopi Goldberg to reprise Guinan yeah. in this movie, given how her her character's backstory was, you know, a species that was um, destroyed by the Borg. But wasn't she on the- Deep Space? Wasn't she on another series? Didn't she cross over or not? I have no idea. Okay. Somebody's not thought I kind um I kind of tapped out of Star Trek um once I grew up and moved out <laughs> on my own, which is weird how that happens. You become an adult and you stop being interested in Star Trek. Um well, around Voyager time or Yeah, around Voyager time. Um 
it just got to be silly. I mean, I know they, they tried to get me back by introducing seven of nine and I was <laughs> tempted and I maybe dipped in to see if it one was of us, one of us has a fetish for the Borg attire. I'm not saying which one no. of us. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's Thomas. Um, so but one thing about the two movies we're talking about today, and I think that differentiates the series they come from compared to like um, maybe Voyager, Enterprise, Discovery, et cetera, et cetera, was that even though it's a TV cast, they have enormous chemistry when they get together. It's like when you get musicians who are okay, but when they get together, they have a certain chemistry and that, that really the, the, the movies feed off of that at their best. And I, I don't think the ensembles of the subsequent shows ever rose to that. And, and that might be part of why none of them ever graduated to anything more. I think um, D Space Nine had some great chemistry with some of the characters with that one. Lesser with Voyager, I think. But certainly in the recent shows like um, Discovery, mm-hmm. I think they definitely went through a different tact with that and putting their uh, main character as the l- lieutenant. Um, I can't remember her name now. Something green. Uh, mm-hmm. Se- Sequoia, yeah, and yeah, I feel like I didn't know, I didn't really know much about the bridge crew on that show, uh, and that's what's kind of great about like Strange New Worlds. I'm watching it at the mm-hmm. moment, the first series, and like I feel like I know this crew really well compared to the Discovery crew. Yes, you've got like Pike and O'Hara. And Spock, obviously, but they don't bring everyone back. And there's, but yet, all the other new characters kind of hold their own in that show. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we see maybe like a Strange New Worlds movie, because um, obviously mm-hmm. they're struggling with with the movies at the moment. Because um, obviously, Beyond didn't do great at the box office, which, and obviously, the fourth Star Trek film has been in development hell for an awfully long time and forever. Yeah, they lost I mean, one of the actors. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. I'm glad you brought up Strange New Worlds because um, that was like the first show since probably Next Generation went off the air that I watched a couple episodes of and I I thoroughly enjoyed it and loved it. And I think they have a a very lucky chemistry behind the ensemble. Mm -hmm. Um, And I actually went back and I said, well, maybe Discovery wasn't as bad as I remember because Captain Pike, Anson Mount, is in a whole season yep. and I tried to watch it and it is so grim and has so <laughs> many soap opera storylines. I had no idea what was happening. Um, and it, none of it had the fun yeah. of uh, the strange new world show. Yeah. Um, strange new worlds is definitely a, a lot lighthearted, I guess I do enjoy, you know, the first couple of seasons of discovery, but then it kind of goes off a cliff in season three and I didn't finish it. <laughs> uh, and there is a season four apparently, but I don't think, Hardly anyone has watched that, to be honest. Um, yeah. And then um, I guess they filmed a season finale and it turned out to be a series finale. It hasn't aired yet. Um, anyway, yeah, it didn't get a full seven seasons like no. all the other Star Treks. Um, so going back to the original Star Trek crew and those movies and the Undiscovered Country um the third season of picard they they had two seasons of almost unwatchable tv um 
and Patrick Stewart was very much against nostalgia. He was all about looking forward. Um, yeah. And the whole third season is about getting the gang back together again. Mm. And the, the new executive producer and showrunner really wanted to tie off the next generation and give them a send off that the original crew got with undiscovered country. Cause they never really had a proper send off. Um, and as a, as a bunch of fan service, uh, season three of Picard is completely amazing. Um, thoroughly enjoyable, kind of dumb, uh, <laughs> but in a good, but in a good way. Um, it's weird how all these things kind of feed into each other. I know a lot of the stuff with Picard and Locutus has fed into whole season plots of Picard that I didn't watch. Um, yeah. And it is interesting that the uh, space seed and uh, best of both worlds, those two episodes of the two original yeah. series, how much they have spread out as far as plots, characters related to Khan um, the last 40 years. Uh, I was hoping that Mirror Mirror would give us more alternate universe because we don't have enough in cinema right now. <laughs> oh, you mean the, the goatee universe? Uh-huh. Uh, I agree. There needs to be... Um... There needs to be an Oscar-winning uh, movie about parallel <laughs> universes. Uh-huh. If only we had more multiverse <laughs> stories. We usually go six degrees from the last director uh, uh, actor who was Selma Hayek, but um, because Leonard Nimoy was in uh, what is that? There's uh, is it the apartment with Lee Grant? We just we're done like what uh because we had to go from lee grant to Samuel hayek uh-huh uh leonard nimoy was in a film with lee grant so we're we're done like that's it's all it all works itself out the math there what what movie was he in with lee grant i think wasn't it i think it's called the apartment that's you mean the billy wilder movie oh the Jack Lemon and no, Shirley MacLaine? No, no. Uh, isn't, it, isn't it called The Apartment, not The Tenant? Oh, The Land? No. I will tell you next episode. Ah, wow, that's a really good segue. <laughs> <laughs> Bravo, number two. <laughs> Uh, so the are, are you Thomas? Are you have any interest in modern Star Trek? Does any of it kind of make you think? Oh, maybe I'll I'll check it out. Um, no, I think it's probably gotten so deep and convoluted uh, that I'm not I'm not going to be interested. Um, okay, I mean uh, I rather just read original science fiction, I guess, or watch original science fiction movies. Um, yeah. The movie I was trying to think of was called The Balcony with uh, Leonard Nimoy, Peter Falk, Shelley Winters, and Lee Grant. The Balcony, yeah, which is probably adjacent or attached to an apartment. So you were, you were kind of uh, right. I, I get there eventually, and eventually I'll have facts for you as I work through my head that there were ten thousand <laughs> to fifteen thousand humpback whales left in the wild in nineteen eighty six, <laughs> but today there's around one hundred thirty five thousand. Uh, 84,000 of which are mature individuals that can have kids. So they're coming wow. back. And uh, yeah. when they uh, when they sing their song, they really do that thing where they, they kind of almost stand 
on their head in the water. And um, that was a real thing that I didn't know until I saw this movie. I learned something from Star Trek. Did I lose you guys? Yep. Yep. Damn it. <laughs> we, quit, we quit listening along with everybody else just a little while ago. I think it was around what color. Not again. I think it was around what color shirt we would wear. <laughs> I didn't know if we were going to a party later and you don't want us to dress alike. Like, oh, what are you going to wear? Just just to make sure we didn't both show up as, as blue shirts. <laughs> oh. Um, I will have to post on social media the photo of my twin brother and I at age four or five wearing Star Trek shirts. Nice. Um, the absolute cutest thing. I, I will post it when this episode appears. Which Jack might be back here by then. I don't know. Who knows? But uh, in the meantime, uh, while we're waiting for you're waiting for more episodes to come out, you can check out Film versus Film. You can. We are. Film versus film podcast. Uh, we look at cinema re- releases, or we do legend episodes. Uh, we pick a subject from the release, and we pick a film from that subject and battle it out between myself and a guest. Uh, yeah, and see who wins. Score, you know, uh, segments on directing, screenplay, and acting, and see who wins. It's a lot of time, and you guys. And you guys were on our podcast for Christian Bale. Christian Bale, that's the one. American Psycho and Public Enemies. Yeah, and we got snubbed and- for uh, the Mural Streep, but I felt completely justified because you guys then did yeah. uh, for the Ant Man release, the newest Ant Man in the Quantum Verse. I think you did movies that involve ants. We did indeed. <laughs> That was Ant-Man versus, oh, I can't remember. Oh, Bugs Life. Oh, you didn't do Phase 4? No, I'm very (laughs) tempted to, but I was like, the episode would be very short, I think. But um, I did talk a little bit about Phase 4. Yeah, it's a great film, that. Great little film. And you have some uh, great guests coming up. I I think sometime in November, maybe David Fincher? Yes. Yes. Did you pick that one, you guys? (laughs) (laughs) Uh. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and we got now. we got we got Sasevenin, right? Yeah. You, yeah. Cool. Uh, so I need to think of a good <laughs> Fincher film that's better than Seven. Hmm. That could be. Well, that, would be Zod- that would be Zodiac. Yes. It's the only oh. one. The Social Network. Possible. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Okay. Boy. That would be or great. Alien Three. Um, Yes. <laughs> if I'm going to concede to defeat. That'd be a great film. Well, uh, yeah. Check out Film versus Film and subscribe to their feed and you'll know uh, what they're going to try and match up against R7. Good luck. Yeah, we're on a little break at the moment, so there won't be a podcast out soon, but our next one will be at the end of August. Yeah, and we'll be doing heist films. Which heist film would you pick, Thomas? Uh, I would say Ronan, just because I got it on VHS, and I think you would ban me from the podcast if I said anything else. Oh, <laughs> but okay. I would like Inside is... Man. Oh, Inside Man's great. I'm very tempted to pick uh, Reservoir Dogs, but is that cheating? Because <laughs> you don't see the heist. I don't know. <laughs> uh, how about Rafifi? Ooh, yeah. that is probably one of that's probably the best heist movie ever made. 
Or the killing. I do like the killing. Oh yeah. Oh shoot, man. Rafifi <laughs> versus the killing would be a would be a good matchup of movies. Few people have seen it. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, if they're looking for a heist movie set in 1986 that involves two large mammals, <laughs> watch Star Trek: The Voyage Home. So this would count. I'm picking that one, people. I'll do it again. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All right. So uh, thanks to Weird AI for our theme song, right? Yeah. Thanks to Jack. Thanks to Jack for um, editing this at his Parisian leisure. Uh, thanks, Jack. Um, social media stuff is all in the show notes. Um, film versus film, obviously, we'll have a link there. Cool. Thank Martin, you. thank you so much for joining us. That's right. Yeah, it's been an, an absolute pleasure, guys. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun talking Trek. <laughs> yeah, uh, this kind of became Star Trek week for me, and I was very nostalgic about um, watching all of these originally. Uh, it was a lot of fun yeah. to look back for a week. I'm totally done with Star Trek for years now. <laughs> I, I, I don't want anything to do with it. But uh, this was a lot of fun. So Star Wars next week for you? Fuck that. No <laughs> way. <laughs> uh, we're doing musicals next week, right, Thomas? Cool. Yes, we are. Uh, next week we'll be Under the Cherry Moon telling true stories or something like that. David Byrne and Prince. Cool. Sitting in the big chair. Which for Prince is basically any chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Um, yeah. Anything else? Anybody? Anybody want to do uh, space? The final frontier in Leonard Nimoy's voice. No, no? I'm just going to let no. you guys live long and prosper. <laughs> okay. Yeah, my hand is still cramped into that shape. If you could see it. It's very painful. Um, I hope it didn't affect the podcast at all. I can actually do that quite easily, but I don't need any. I, I can't do. I could. I could. I could do it two-handed. That's. Right. And I started practicing probably at age seven. So, fucking nerd. <laughs> <laughs> very sad. All right. Uh, well, thanks, guys. Thank you.